in your face. I'm delighted to have Jonathan Holmesy back on the show. Jonathan is the Movement Director for Guys and Dolls, which is a production by Antipodes Theatre Company at Chapel of Chapel. Jonathan, always great to have you on the show. Great to have you. I'm great to be here. Sorry, great to have you. Sorry. I did it the other way, James. How are you? I'm great. And I was so delighted when I heard that you won a Green Room Award. How wonderful. I did. I actually was away. So every time I've won an award, James, I'm always out of the country. And then when I'm here and I'm nominated, I don't win. So I think... Every time I'm nominated, I need to leave the country, and then I'll win. (laughs) Well, it was fantastic that you did win. And, of course, you're the movement director for Guys and Dolls. And the first thing I thought of was, if Jonathan's involved in this production, it must be really queer. Yeah, it's pretty queer, and we're here to talk about it. So it's, of course, by the wonderful Antipodes Theatre Company. Uh, Tell us how you've queered it up as the movement director. Well, I don't want to tell you all of it, how I've created love, because I want you to see it when it opens next Friday at Chapel Off Chapel. But I think we're interested in that kind of oxymoronic kind of metaphor. Guys and Dolls, obviously, is a very binary production, but how do we soften those edges, both from our wood experience as queer people, but also keep the narrative intact and honor the lineage of that musical? It's such a popular musical, and how do we create a new story? And I think we start from our lived experience, and I think... That's where the queerness comes from, and us being authentically ourselves. Um, when I came on as movement director, I thought about, you know, I, everyone knows I'm a whacker, a queer disco dancer from Los Angeles. So my lived experience with whacking makes me think about the queers who did not get to express themselves. And maybe some of these guys and dolls maybe aren't in love with each other. Maybe they are just together as part of the lavender scare. They were just this straight couple trying to survive and thrive in the early 20th century of the United States. So... I think the queerness comes from the subtext, from the Im- implied body language, and then through the movement styles of the cast. Um, and I always think of queerness, James, as, as beautiful queer failure. You know, Jack Halperson, there's so much queer theory to talk about it. And through our failure to meet a binary, the queerness emerges. Um, and, that's, and that failure is something I'm really excited for us to see at Chapel Off Chapel when it comes out next week. So you've really taken the movement and you use the movement to tell a story, yeah? I think it's about, you know, in Whacking, the, the music comes first. So, you know, how does the book, you know, we got Luck Be a Lady, Sit on Your Rock in the Boat, all these kind of iconic songs, you know, some by Curtis and Frank Sinatra, The Vivian Green. And how does, they, how does the movement come out from inside of that, from the center of our bodies? Um, and that's what I find interesting is how the music manipulates the movement um, because the book is just so um, rich and also can lead to movement to us. And it's like humans and not like a jazz class. You know, this is not Liza Minnelli's kind of musical, you know what I mean? I said Liza's a ghost in our musical. Like, she's emerged a little bit, but, you know, this isn't the kind of musical with jazz hands, you know? It was Depression-era Times Square. It was gritty. And, you know, people barely had time to feel, and when they would feel, they really felt it because of the hardships they were going through in that time. You mentioned your background in whacking. Tell us what whacking is for those listeners who don't know. Totally whacking. There's two spellings of it, W-H-C-K-I-N-G and W-A-A-C-K-I-N-G. It is a queer dance form. I call it like Vogue's cousin um, because we were both created from marginalized communities of black and brown bodies as a form of empowerment. As voguing happened in New York, um, whacking happened in Los Angeles at a bar called Gino's in Los Angeles. 
And even though I'm American, as you know, James, but some of our listeners who haven't met me before, I actually learned Wacky here in Australia from the Asian diaspora. And a lot of people from Japan, Korea, and Taiwan are actually the global leaders of Wacky, wow. you know, almost 50 years later. So I think what makes the Guys and Dolls musical very rich is because the music is so rich, and Wacky, we embody the music. We usually embody funk and disco music. So I'm really been excited by the challenge of, you know, queering the musical from the inside out, but always starting from the book, starting from the music, because it's so iconic, it's what people know. Um, and I can't wait for you to see it next Friday at Chapel Off Chapel. Yeah, and I mean, the cast is outstanding. I mean, you've got Kiki Temple and more. Tell us about your colleagues. Oh, God, tell us about our colleagues. Um, I think what's interesting about them is that we have a lot of non-binary finaries in the, clack, in the cast. Um, and I think from... Willow Sizer, to Bugs, they're really trying to address the role from the inside out, you know, and honor the, the narrative, but also honor their own subtext. And I think seeing a cast incorporate their lived experience in an organic way in a musical, which is usually fairly inorganic, right? We usually don't sing and start doing materials down the street. Well, maybe I am, you know, a bit dramatic. But I think it's how do they add the queer humans of themselves to a show that basically is binary, and there, and that constant push and pull, and I think of Jala Black, you know, another non-binary performer who just really takes the role of a masculine track, but encapsulates all of their gender identity with inside of it. And it's something I've actually never seen before. And again, I hope all of you see it next week. And we run for two weeks. Wow. So you're really, really, you know, doing it in a very contemporary way and you're really giving it a modern interpretation and understanding of gender. So it has indeed evolved because this production has been going for 70 years. It's been going for a long time, you know, and I think, you know, these roles, if you've seen the film, it's Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando. They're very classic Hollywood. And I also think we are in a world of third wave feminism, you know, so I think it's you know, how do we keep the musical to its narrative while keeping up with the discussions of what we're concerned about as both people on stage and off stage, which is around agency over our body and our choices and also autonomy. And I think Wacky being a freestyle dance um, leans into that, you know, metaphor of autonomy and agency. Like there's one thing to read pleasure activism and there's another thing to embody it. And I think this cast tries their God darn hardest. I never say it like that. I usually swear it before. But, um, to include themselves in it. And I think, you know, seeing, you know, mask presenting performers and take back your mink, I don't want to give too many things away, but I think gender is constantly questioned, but also constantly acknowledged in the canon and the history it was in, which was there were only brief moments where people could express their full selves and that push and pull of needing to put on a coat or needing to put on a mask to survive. And, it, you know, it was, it was a form of survival. And I think, we want to celebrate their survival because without them, we, we wouldn't be here today. Yeah, absolutely. That survival narrative is so incredibly important. Um, it sounds like the cast has really done a lot of talking and really kind of, you know, really kind of um, has meshed on this project. And I think, yes, they really have, again, it's connecting lived experience. Like, there's one thing, lived experience is a very hot word, right, James, in this decade, but how do we apply that to a musical, which is always you're putting on a character? And how do we find those boundaries? And I think the word I always use is, is oh, my dear friend Holly Durant, which I know you know James quite well, is slippage. How is there moments for slippage between the character, from the audience? You know, 
those rules of breaking the fourth wall. And I think the way we've changed the production, there's even table seats so you can be right immersed in the audience. There's only about six of those seats, and I believe some of them are sold out, so please get it while you can, of how to immerse yourself in that experience. And I think it's, it's feeling. I think when I think of queerness, I think of emotion. I don't think of queerness as just sexual and gender identity. I also think of as othering, other ways of thought. You know, traditional ways of thought that are away from a Western heteronormative colonial narrative. I, of course, we are doing an American musical, so there's some things we can't remove. But I think for each of the little nuances of the characters, we see little nuggets of gold um, of their the complex selves, which was constantly layered so they could survive and be the best person they could be, and applying their lived experience in a way that's healthy and also ethical um, is, is, is urgent in these, in these times, especially in the musical, which is constantly tiring. The show's two and a half hours. How do we you know, keep queerness there, but also keep health and well-being? And um, the answer is we don't know yet, but we're going to keep trying our best. And I think a lot of us as artists in this generation, we don't know the answers just yet, but we're just focusing on feeling good inside and out and getting the job done, and we hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, it's a wonderful interpretation of Guys and Dolls. It's on at Chapel Off Chapel, August 10 to 19. Jonathan Holmes, always great to hear your voice on 3CR. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. We can't wait to see you in Tiffany's at Chapel Off Chapel next week. Awesome stuff. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Cheers. All the best. Bye. Jonathan Holmes, you there.
soon Fiona Waters from Hag to talk about homelessness week I'm sitting in the railway station got a ticket for my destination mm-hmm. on a tour of one night stands my suitcase and guitar in hand and every stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one man band Homeward bound, I wish I was Homeward bound Home, where my thoughts escaping Home, where my music's playing Home, where my love lies waiting silently for me Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines And each town looks the same to me The movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see Reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home where my thoughts are escaping Home where my music's playing Home where my love lies waiting silently Tonight I'll sing my songs again I'll play the game and pretend mm-hmm. But all my words come back to me In shades of mediocrity Like emptiness and harmony I need someone to comfort me Homeward bound I wish I was homeward bound Simon and Garth, uncle there. I'm delighted to have Fiona Waters from HAG, uh, Housing for the Aged Action Group, in the studio to talk about Homelessness Week, which is August 7 to 13. Welcome to 3CR, Fiona. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. Homelessness, what a big topic. Uh, it's getting worse. Mm, it is. What, what, what are you seeing at HAG in terms of older people and homelessness? Um, I guess because our service targets supporting people who are, are 50 years and older, we've noticed, especially in the last few months, that there's been a real increase. And we're hearing that from other services too, that it's, it is getting worse. And um, generally older women are those who are experiencing it at a higher rate than other genders and age in across age groups. Um, and also, I guess at HAG, we have a LGBTQIA plus project and reference group. And so we're also trying to... Um, We've seen from research that older LGBTQIA plus people are more likely to be experiencing um, risk of homelessness or precarious housing than um, other people. Um, so I guess our service is also trying to make sure that uh, yeah, people from the community um, know what makes them at risk and also where to go if they need support. Um, 
And a lot of we did some research, and one of the things we found was a lot of people who we would see as being at risk didn't realise they were, and also didn't know um, that they had access to support. Um, so that's yeah, a bit scary, but also I'm glad to be here to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is great to have you here. Uh, incredibly timely. I know that you know rents are just going through the roof, uh, but homelessness is an incredibly complex issue. But I imagine the rental crisis is making it so much worse, and becomes a real tipping point in terms of all of those other stresses and risk factors. Mm, definitely, and I think also, um, like from the research that we did in 2019, which is before things got cost of living got worse and rents got higher, um, we saw that um, generally older LGBTI people are more likely to be renters, they're more likely to be living alone, um, they're more likely to be care- a carer of some sort. Um, so they're all things that put other strains on, on your life and financial as well. So we've seen that that's, I guess, um, increasing for the general population. Everyone's having a harder time financially, especially if you're a renter. But um, yeah, I guess we're we're seeing that it's impacting older LGBTI people more because of historic and systemic discrimination they've experienced. Um, so what we're doing at the moment is also repeating the survey to see how things have changed since 2019 because we happened to do a survey right before the pandemic. Um, and so we're trying to repeat that to see what's changed because then we can see where we need to advocate more strongly um, with policymakers and decision makers and also maybe where we need to go and meet people to kind of do community education to say, hey, did you know that this places you at risk? And if you do need help in the future, this is where you can go. So people have a bit of a plan. Um, so they're not just thinking, Oop, where do I go? I'm in the crisis. Like having a bit of um, helping people have a bit of foresight to say, if I do hit a crisis point, then this is where I go to. Because, yeah, the risk factors being um, being in a rental, living alone and but re- having a low income, whether it's a pension of some sort or just a lower income when you're working, um, like that's something I'm three of those things. So it's not about um, people's choices. It's more just about um, the system doesn't support people to have a house and be comfortable. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the system really does need a revamp. But where do you go? Um, so HAG has recent has in the um, a part of the project was we got a rainbow ticket accreditation, which meant that it was um, going through all of our policies, how we operate to make sure that we're a culturally safe space for LGBTQI plus people to access support. Um, that involved having a steering committee of um, peak bodies to inform what we're doing. We have a um, reference group of uh, at the moment it's ten um, older people um, across the the acronym um, to represent the diversity of um, older people and what they need in housing. And so they meet, um, I'm the facilitator for that group. We meet once a month and discuss um, any policy submissions we do. We get their feedback on to make sure it's um, representative. Um, We also do information sessions. There's one this week at the Fitzroy Library um, from six till seven, which me and one of the community educators who's an older person are presenting together. Um, So if anybody would like to come along, whether you're experiencing housing stress and want to know more about um, where to get assistance or if you know somebody, um, you can come along. Um, It's it's information. It's fairly informal. Lots of questions. Um, Me rambling like I'm rambling now, um, but in person, so even better. Um, Yeah, so people can learn more in person, but or you can look on our website and find out more about how to access support. Do you find that people basically have to be homeless in order to get social or public housing and that the system therefore needs to be restructured because that's just an, you know, an unacceptable situation? Yeah, it definitely we I guess we're seeing more with people calling up is people are in more more in more high levels of crisis than they they were historically when they contacted our service. Um for older people 
um, because you can get on different levels of priority based on your situation, which can include age, um, how precarious your housing is, um, health factors can mean that you can apply with the support of an organisation like ours to get on a higher level of priority, which means the wait time's shorter. There generally still is a wait time, um, but getting support to apply through an organisation means that you can access higher levels of priority listings and also then you get the support of an organization to assist you advocating so if um, something happens you have someone that you can call for assistance rather than having to navigate the system yourself because like you said um, the system is set up to exclude people um, in a way it makes it hard to get in yeah, so the answer for people who I guess are, are feeling great mental stress and feel like they will no longer be able to pay their rent and can't afford to go potentially anywhere else is to access an agency who can provide them with support before they're, before they're homeless. But I guess even then, if they, if they can no longer pay their, their rent, the, the waiting list is just still too long and mm. there will be a time of precarious housing before they're adequately housed. Yeah, there's definitely um, definitely wait lists and often there is a bit of a wait time to get a support worker, but I guess that's um, Hag's way of seeing things is getting information bef- like before you think that you might be in stress. I think that's where lots of people see – people kind of see homelessness as being – it might be somebody sleeping rough or someone sleeping in their car, but it also is paying too much rent, living in a house that's unsafe for you, living in a house where you don't have your own bedroom, like maybe it's overcrowded, you're couch surfing, you're staying on someone's couch – um, your you know share housing in a way that's unsuitable for your well-being. Um, so it's about maybe if you're in those situations, contacting a service to get advice and say like what's the process. So then you know where to go, or you can put your name on the list early. So maybe by the time you get an offer or um, get support, LinkedIn, um, you know it might catch you before you hit, hit a, you know another level of crisis. So I guess one of the issues is that there's just not enough public housing and social housing stock. And no matter what the government seems to do, it can never really change that, it seems. Yeah, I feel like they, you know, HAGS um, was, it's our 40-year anniversary this year and we put a um, banner that was made by members in 1983 and it says we need more public housing. So that's, you know, generally whatever HAG does, that's our key ask. Um, in any submission, any discussion is we just need more houses. Um, so it's, I guess it's just a perpetual issue that no matter which um, what's going on um, and how much money is put into building more houses, there's just not enough for the demand, um, especially for older people who um, I guess might have more barriers to accessing housing, have limited income because of being on a pension, things like that. It's um, just there's just not enough is the nutshell. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I remember six years ago, the state government uh, implemented its homelessness action plan after all those people in the CBD were basically turfed turfed out. And so the government put all this money into a strategy to address homelessness and, um, you know, increase the stock to some extent. But it just seems like that's almost goes nowhere six years later. I mean, I live in Brunswick and there's been a person sleeping under a rotunda near my house since March. Yeah, I think there's just not enough, just not enough housing and they, um, whatever they propose to build just isn't enough for the wait list. Um, and because it's, yeah, I guess like you said earlier, it's uh, people have to be in a pretty severe level of crisis to access immediate support and there needs to be more houses but also more effort put into kind of preventative things to so support people before um, they're in a position like that so people don't, have to wait on waitlist for so long because they get support early on to to you know 
be connected to things and get housing so that's not just more and more people being added to the list and then, you know, a hundred housing houses being built and you're like, that's a drop in the ocean. It's almost as if state and federal governments need to basically bite the bullet and put a huge but adequate investment into into housing for people so that this situation is actually addressed. Because, I mean, one of the markers of a, of a civilised society is having everybody housed. Mm. And we constantly fail on that in a capitalist system, don't we? Yeah. I think it's also just like coming down to like, you know, it's a, I guess, a human, it's about human rights as well. You can't have, um, it's harder to manage everything else in your life if your housing's unstable. Um, some of the, like, um, one of the things that we always talk about when we do the community education sessions is um, there's some research into like what's the number one marker for um, well-being, especially for older people. And it's about having secure housing because you can't manage it. You know, everything else just feels even more overwhelming if you're thinking, you know, am I going to have to move out in two weeks? What am I going to do with all my things? People who have pets, like, you know, having to, um, yeah, all these things just are more difficult if your housing's insecure. Yeah, absolutely. If someone has a chronic illness, it's probably going to get a lot worse if they're homeless. Yeah. And then there's the issue of medication. It's hard to be medication compliant when you're constantly in an unsafe environment, if you're homeless and precariously housed or living out of your car mm. <laughs> in an alleyway, which which is something that's increasingly happening, isn't it? Yeah, and lots of people, especially... Um, yeah, people are choosing to live in their cars um, because, you know, for, for some reasons, like saying in the areas that they're comfortable with, often um, there's an assumption if you're uh, in a crisis, a housing crisis, that you, you're you happy to live everywhere. But it's like for some, you know, for people, it's totally reasonable to say, I want to live in the areas I know. I want to be near my doctors, my friends, my supports, my community. Um, that's really important. Or people who have pets might not have um family around for whatever reason. It's like having, if you want to move into crisis housing, often you have to you can't bring animals with you or there's a limit on how many animals can be there. So people are having to, you know, they're already feeling at a loss for things and having to give up a pet as well is traumatic on top of traumatic um, things like that. Or, um, but then often people, if people are accessing crisis services and because there's so many people who need housing, um, often if you do have a car to sleep in, then you won't, you'll be, won't be prioritized as highly because there's somebody without a car. So even that is, you know, there's just, wait lists on wait lists and obviously you want the people who are in the most urgent situation to get the most urgent support but you know it's a pretty um sad state of affairs when um you're seen as lucky because you can sleep in your car when everyone should be able to sleep in a you know not just a house but a home yeah it's absolutely completely unacceptable that we're in this position and that seems to be getting worse um what's your view on the issue of rent caps uh rents being frozen surely that would address this escalating issue of people being homeless because they can't pay their rents it would it would you know um i guess steady the decline mm well, i think just um rents are too high i think rent caps are we just need better policies around how rents can be increased um, because, you know, a lot of the stuff we see, especially with older people, is that rents are increased at an amount that isn't matching to CPI. Sorry, isn't, isn't matching to the pension. Um, often the, you know, amounts it's increasing by is just not actually matching anything. It's especially when rents are being increased at the moment to a market rate. But if the whole market's high, then that becomes kind of arbitrary in a way. <laughs> Um, and a lot of some of the work we do as well is with people, older people who are living in retirement villages, residential parks, other places like that, where they have a, their own contract structure. And often in there, there's a 
contracted term that people can have a rent increase based on a CPI amount, but because CPI has gone up so wildly, um, in the past it would have been 2% increase, but we're seeing people coming through with a rent increase of, you know, 15%, um, which is totally undoable. And if it's going to keep on increasing by the HER, they're going to be, you know, in this housing that they've bought into, they thought they're going to be there for the rest of their lives, but they're not going to be able to pay for the, you know, ongoing charges, um, even though they might have bought in, um, you know, with quite a lot of money. It's like, I guess, the kind of the mortgage trap where, you know, you, you can't pay rent is one thing, but also lots of people are presenting with potentially not being able to pay their mortgage amounts. And then what happens then? <laughs> Absolutely. Because, of course, you know, wages are not keeping up with the cost of living crisis. Mm. And, I mean, the issue for people who are on fixed incomes, you know, on, say, the disability support pension, the aged care pension, mm. um, it reaches a point where it's completely unsustainable mm. to be able to pay your rent. I mean, already, you know, I saw a post recently from someone who, who is spending 88% of their fixed income mm. on, on rent. How can you live off 12% of the DSP? Yeah, it's completely outrageous. And also, yeah, I guess a lot of people who come to our service – Generally, I would say, you know, a really high percentage of people who are coming to seek support are often older people, often living alone, often women in private rentals. Um, And that's not, you know, quite normal for us, our clients to be in a private rental paying, you know, 60% of their pension. People who are um, making do by like, um, like I had someone who I spoke to recently who was like, oh, yeah, I used to have red meat three times a week and now I have it once a week. I used to go to the pool twice a week to manage my health condition and now I'm going once a week. So people are making really massive decisions because um, they're having to make do. But it also means it's, you know, you've got rental stress, which is, you know, bad for your mental health. And then you're also decreasing what food you can eat, what places you can go to socially. So people live quite isolated lives in the end um, because the rents are so high and there's, you know, you have to make sacrifices and your landlord's not going to cut your rent. So you have to cut what you're having for dinner and that's obscene. (laughs) And meanwhile, the government, the federal government at least, is sitting on this massive surplus. Um, It's obscene, isn't it, that we live in such a wealthy country, but there's so many people living in poverty. Mm. Uh, And you mentioned all of those hidden kind of, you know, costs. Um, You mentioned the impacts on people, the suffering that it causes. You know, they might not be homeless, but their quality of life is severely diminished where it's not really a life. Mm. Well, some people, often I'll you know, you'll chat to someone um, and then they'll be like, this has been lovely. You're the first person I've talked to all week because people are stuck in their houses to like to, to remain housed. They're having to sacrifice so much else that, yeah, like you said, they're not really living a life. And that's really horrible that that's, you know, and I guess often people also feel like they're to blame that they've made poor choices and that's why they're in this position when it's that's not the case. It's just like a system's been set up to make people have to make decisions like this. Um, and I think that's, I guess, is the hardest thing to hear is people who feel like it's, you know, that they've done something wrong when that's 100% not the case. Absolutely. Well, Homelessness Week is next week, August 7th to 13th. Fiona Waters from HAG, Housing for the Aged Action Group. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. Thanks for having me.
Magic Dirt Bear, she riff. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. I'm absolutely delighted to have Janice Florence on the line. Janice is the co-director and choreographer of Sense of Place, uh, brought to us by Weave Movement Theatre. It's happening at Dance House Melbourne, August 16 to 19. Janice joins us on the line. Janice, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Tell us about Sense of Place and how it engages our senses. Yes, well, I'm working with Sia Kane as my co-director and she has um, been working with sensory theatre for a while and done some overseas study in that form of theatre. And so it it uses um, various senses that aren't usually engaged in theatre. I mean, normally it's sound and hearing mostly Um, and, yeah, I mean, sorry, sound and vision. Um, and so we're also using other senses such as taste and smell and touch uh, in this production, as part of the production. It sounds like a really beautiful way to approach movement and theatre because, of course, Weave Music Theatre is a disability-led theatre company, so it sounds incredibly empowering. Uh, yes, well, I'm I'm disabled myself. I'm a disabled performing artist, and um, the other people in the company are also very experienced performers, seasoned performers, who have various types of conditions and disabilities and access needs. So um, it, it's quite a good way to generate stories. We found, if as you know. In everyday life, a smell or a sound, maybe a song, can um, evoke a memory or a story from your life. And so this is what we've used to sort of generate material for this show. Tell us about some of the stories in Sense of Place. Mm-hmm. Well, look, there are stories there from individuals um, about connection with place. And there are also sort of group um evocations of our relationship to place. So there are uh, people in the company, uh, we have one First Nations performer and we've never really discussed this aspect of his life before but we started off this project with writing and he came up with a story about his life which we didn't really know. Um, Because he had a disability, he was uh, born in the country and he was sort of trucked off to Melbourne straight away and put in institution till he was 16 due to his disability and the attitudes of the time. And so he didn't really meet up with his family again or go back to his original place, which was the Yorta Yorta country, until he was in his 30s. Wow, so that sense of place is really connected to identity and loss of identity and finding it again. Yes. That's right, yeah. And he's had a very long journey. He's actually very resilient. He's had a long journey to um, rediscovering his culture and now he's very much involved in it. So, Janice, how do you do the choreography for this wonderful production? Tell us about how you've kind of got to the point that you're at. Yeah, well, over the years, um, we've developed a form of working with the various people who've passed through the company over time. It's been going for 25 years. And some people have gone on to other companies, you know, even overseas, 
um, after they've been in weave. Um, so I originally have quite a big dance background, but I did a course here called the uh, Diploma of Movement and Dance where I learned about forms of dance I hadn't actually come across before around which um, around sort of using improvisation as a way of generating movement. So we might present people with an idea um, which they can then interpret um, from with their own capabilities and their own interests and experiences. So we might present them with a task and then they'll all have their own version of it and we'll pick up on what was strong in that and then form that into the choreography of the piece. Uh, for example, one of our members is a young woman with Down syndrome and when we were uh, developing the piece last year, we were firing questions at her around sensory things like where you are at the moment, what does it look like, what does it sound like, what does it feel like? And she she wasn't really taking in all these words being fired at her. So she responded in dance, in really beautiful dance, and so now that's been taken into the choreography. What beautiful gifts have, have come from this process that you've gone through? I mean, that's extraordinary um, and something completely unanticipated by the sounds of it. Uh, yes, that's right. So that's that's a part of the... Um, uh, sort of talent you have to have with working with people with a whole lot of different um, ways of approaching things and thinking about things and physically um, approaching things. You have to really listen and watch and pick up on what might be strong in, in what they come up with. So have you found that this production has evolved into something that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I guess some of the stories... No, yeah, definitely. People had different attitudes to what they considered their sort of comfortable home place. One of the performers considers being in a studio creating theatre his comfortable home place. Another another performer can, he does a lot of writing and he considers sitting and writing and discovering characters and stories his home place. So it's not always an actual physical location, although it is for some people. Um, so, yeah, so it can be any place where you find yourself feeling your true self sort of thing. It must be really beautiful for you as the co-director and choreographer seeing people kind of, you know, discover all of this stuff and the sense of contentment that that must evoke. Yeah, well, the, yes, I think it does give some authenticity to it. Um, yeah, and, and people exploring their own stories and discovering things. I mean, that's like the good thing about the sort of sensory approach is that you might you come in through just um, thinking about a certain thing that you're directed towards, like what what do you see in this space? And then all of a sudden you start seeing things which evoke your own stories. And so it's a bit of a surprise that you suddenly come across this story. It's not intentional, but then that develops into really rich material. How long has it taken to get to this point that you're at now with this production? I mean, you talked about developing it last year. Yeah. Um, when when did this production kind of, you know, the planning for it start? Well, last, well, before, anyway, well, last year um, in May, we had a, first development, which means you get together for about a month 
um, you know, maybe a couple of times a week and work on material that you're discovering and then form it into a piece. At that stage, we had a showing for a small audience to get feedback. So, and and since then, this year, we've had a develop, another development, developed it further and so moving on into the show. Janice Florence there and Sense of Place is staging at Dance House Melbourne at 150 Princes Street, North Carlton, August 16 to 19. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 